The second reading is from the letter of Paul to the Ephesians. I, therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all in all. But each of us was given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. The gifts he gave were that some would be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until all of us come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to maturity, to the measure of the full statue of Christ, stature of Christ. We must no longer be children, tossed to and fro and blown about by every wind of doctrine, by people's trickery, by their craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love. We must grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by every ligament with which it is equipped, as each part is working properly, promotes the body's growth in building itself up in love. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We're continuing this morning our look at Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And our reading for today marks the transition from Paul's exposition of the mystery of God held for ages and now revealed in Jesus Christ, the gospel mystery that broke down the dividing wall that existed within humanity and has brought about new creation. And St. Paul now turns from that to begin explicating how the Ephesian Christians are to live with one another in light of this epiphany. St. Paul begins his exhortation by reminding the Ephesians that he is a prisoner in the Lord, which is a curious phrase. What he's driving at is that his communion with Christ is in some way revealed in and through his bondage and chains. And he then urges his readers to walk in a manner worthy of their calling, the invitation that they received to participate in the very life of God, having been adopted as full heirs of God in Christ Jesus. And what Paul goes on to describe should stop each of us in our tracks. And he goes about working at two different levels. On the one, there is this objective reality of life in God's church and God's kingdom. And then on the other level, there is this interior disposition of our own will that either co-inheres with that objective reality of God's kingdom or tears away from it in destructive ways. We're going to begin with the reality of God's church. Paul's description of the church revolves around a repetition of the word one. There is one body, he says. 
That statement is almost a tautology. The body he is speaking of is, of course, the body of Christ, and to say that there would be more than one body of Christ would be insane. This is one of Paul's favorite terms for the church. And it's important at the outset to recognize that Paul is not talking about the oneness of the body, the church, in terms of an isolated local congregation. But neither is he talking about an aggregate unity where all of the local congregations are added together to make one big group. No. A local parish is a microcosm of the church. It's a hologram. You guys know how holograms work? Each part of the whole hologram, if you isolate one little part of it, contains the whole hologram. This is like the church. The church is full and complete in her local expression, but each local expression is brought together in one single unity. Notice also that Paul doesn't say that the oneness of the body is something that ought to be true. It simply is true. Our behaviors and dispositions can either go with the grain of reality or seek to cut against it and attempt to destroy it. But either way, there are not multiple bodies that we should hope to be merged into one. There is only one body. Likewise, there is only one spirit. The spirit alone exists in eternal procession from the Father. Likewise, there is only one Lord, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who is the only eternally begotten Son of the Father. Likewise, there is only one God and Father of all who is the eternal source of the eternal begottenness of the Son and the eternal procession of the Spirit. But that's not all. He says there is one faith. This carries the connotation of the apostolic witness that has been handed down, the content of belief. And you can track this through the whole letter. At the end of chapter 1, St. Paul tells us that God the Father has placed Christ as the head over all things for the church, which is his body. And in chapter 2, which we just looked at last week, Paul says that the reconciling work of Christ in demolishing the division between the family of Abraham and the nations of the Gentiles has been accomplished in one body on the cross. And having been made members of the one household, as he calls it, we are being built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. It's all one. But he's not done. There is also one baptism, which is to say one immersion into the divine life of the one triune God, as we say in the creed each week. We acknowledge one baptism, one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. You tracking with the oneness theme here? Everything he has to describe what it means to be a follower of Christ is rooted in oneness. What are we to make of this? What would St. Paul say to us about our current state? We haven't even gotten to our interior state. This is still just about the structural reality. What would St. Paul say to us about our fracturing and denominationalism and non-denominationalism? How would he assess all of the lopsided houses that have been built on the sandy foundations of charismatic personalities with publishing platforms 
and liturgical culture that does little more than ape top 40 radio combined with a Steve Jobs type product reveal complete with marketing schemes, sales pitches, and emotional manipulation. What would St. Paul have to say about any of that? If you were to write the definitive book on American Christian religious history, you'd probably want to title it DIY Church. That's how we think about things as Americans. We're just going to do it ourselves. And I realize that I'm probably coming off a little acidic here, but it's because we have got to wake up to the reality that we have all been born into a time and place that has so confused Christianity with Americanism that we're like that gif of the dog sipping coffee in the house that's burning down going, this is fine. You guys know the one I'm talking about? Nowhere does Paul describe the church as a place where we should all get our emotional needs met. Nowhere does he describe the church as a place that lines up with my particular musical and liturgical tastes. Nowhere does Paul describe the church as the place that accommodates to all of my theological beliefs. Which means that a lot of us may not have been participating in the church of Jesus Christ. We have been participating in the church of Burger King. Have it your way. Right? Paul describes for us this objective reality of unity and oneness that is the body of Christ. And then, in the same breath, he tells us that we are to strive and work toward that unity. It is both a reality and a thing that we must work out. Disunity in the church is a grave, grave sin. As St. John Chrysostom said in reflecting on this text, quote, tell me, suppose, a subject of some king, though he did not join himself to another king, nor give himself to any other, yet should take and keep hold of his king's royal purple and should tear it all from its clasp and rend it into many shreds. Would he suffer less punishment than those who join themselves to the service of another? And what if he were to seize the king himself by the throat and slay him and tear his body limb from limb? What punishment could he undergo that should be equal to his deserts? Now, if in doing this toward a king, his fellow servant, he would be committing an act too great for any punishment to reach, of what hell shall shall not he be worthy who slays Christ and plucks him limb from limb? He ends this, this section of his homily by saying, of the hell which is threatened, no, I think not, but another far more dreadful. Chrysostom in that same homily goes on to identify two main sources of schism in the church. The first is heresy, which amounts to a denial of the apostolic faith that has been handed down. As you've no doubt heard me say before, heresy means to choose. That's the root of that word. It's not always saying something is, that you're believing something that's dead wrong. More often it is choosing one idea or one pet theological hobby horse at the expense of the tension and paradox of the whole of the faith that has been handed down. The second source of schism that Chrysostom identifies is the lust of power. 
So as a schismatic, either you don't believe what the church teaches and you go start a heretical group to fit with your personal beliefs, or you do agree with what the church teaches, but you want to be in charge. The result of either motive is destructiveness and despair, both for the people who perpetrate it and for the people who follow them wittingly or unwittingly. Friends, we must no longer be children tossed to and fro and blown about by every wind of doctrine, by people's trickery, by their craftiness in deceitful scheming. Now, I've, I've realized that that Chrysostom quote is like a punch to the stomach, okay? I didn't really like reading it either, <laughs> just so we're clear. And without wanting to take away any of the force of what St. Paul is saying or explain our way out of it or even what we've heard from St. Chrysostom, we have to reckon with the fact that we were born into a fractured setting. We can't just flip a switch and make it all okay. And part of the reason for that is that in inhabiting fracture, we have taken on the habits of fracture. So our interior disposition must undergo a shift. So here, St. Paul, a prisoner united to Christ, begs us to walk worthy of our calling by taking on humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love and making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I mean, this list that Paul gives us for our interior disposition basically reads like a how-not-to-do-social-media list, right? It's like the exact opposite of everything that he's talking about. The culture we're living in is like a funhouse mirror of the religious fundamentalism I grew up in. It is wooden, narrow-minded, and above all, it is zealous. And this is, sadly, how many of us learned Christianity and beyond how many of us have learned to carry ourselves in the world with this zealousness to always be out there correcting and convincing, right? And so to each of us, I would say, hear the words of St. Isaac the Syrian. He says, a zealous man never achieves peace of mind, but he who is a stranger to peace is a stranger to joy. If, as it is said, the peace of mind is perfect health and zeal is opposed to peace, then the man who has a wrong zeal is ill, with a grievous disease. Though you presume, O oh man, to send forth your zeal against the infirmities of other men, you have expelled the health of your own soul. Be assiduous, rather, in laboring for your own soul's health. If you wish to heal the infirm, know that the sick are in greater need of loving care than of rebuke. Therefore, although you do not help others, you expend labor to bring grievous illness upon yourself. Zeal is not reckoned among men to be a form of wisdom, but as one of the illnesses of the soul, namely narrow-mindedness and deep ignorance. The beginning of divine wisdom is clemency and gentleness, which arise from greatness of soul and the bearing of the infirmities of men. For he says, let the strong bear the infirmities of the weak and restore him that has fallen in the spirit of meekness. The apostle numbers peace and patience among the fruits of the Spirit. 
If you wish to heal the infirm, know that the sick are in greater need of loving care than rebuke. Is that our first instinct? I confess it is not mine. May Christ come and do this work in our hearts. The sick are in greater need of loving care than rebuke. That's it. That's everything. The people around us in this city are wasting away in sin and death. And oh, how desperately sad it is that the thing they expect from us most is a lecture rather than real medicine, real care, real love. Now, many of you sitting here are actual medical professionals, and I know that oftentimes you recognize that love will require you to say difficult things that your patients don't want to hear. Basically, all of us, though, can intuit when difficult things are being spoken to us in a spirit of love or a spirit of zeal. So how do we, as unique persons and as a community, cultivate gentleness, humility, patience, and love. This would be like another five weeks of sermons. There's so much more that can be said. But for starters, I want to remind you that you become that which you meditate upon. You have become that which you have already meditated upon, which means that for most of us here, there is a single obvious thing that we could start doing even this afternoon to begin the work of cultivating this garden of love and forbearance. It's really easy. Are you ready? Get off the internet. Everything that Paul is talking about here, being patient, forbearing, having wisdom, seeking the unity of the Spirit, these things are nigh unto impossible on social media. And I'm going to just throw nigh in there so that I'm not accused of heresy in another thousand years when the people look back and say, oh, no, it's actually fine. I mean, how is doom scrolling on social media cultivating peace and patience in your heart? I'm open to answers if you have one. And even if you're not adding to the noise like me for the last like five years on Twitter, I just stopped posting, how is listening to the cacophony of people arguing about all manner of things promoting the body's growth and building itself up in love? You become that which you meditate upon. If you want to be loving and patient and kind and forbearing with one another, we must meditate upon Christ. It's a self-reinforcing loop, right? We have brought all of the worst of ourselves onto social media, and now those platforms are giving us a regular diet of outrage, argument, and zealotry to the point that we can no longer see human beings in front of us while we scream at each other in real life. This is not the way. If we are to be people who seek to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, people marked by humility, gentleness, patience, and loving forbearance, we must meditate and ingest those things all the time. Sing the Psalms. Read the lives of the saints. Meditate upon the Gospels and the rest of Scripture and seek the mind of Christ. 
So I'll end with just one very small practical idea. When you get home, and you inevitably are going to do what I'm going to do when I get home, I'm going to pull out that little glow stick from my pocket, and I'm going to wonder what's going on in the world. It's hugely addictive, right? Put your phone away, and look instead at an icon of Christ. And I mean like a real actual icon. If you don't have one, come and find me, and I will buy you one. If you do this enough, and do the work of quieting your mind in the presence of Christ, you will eventually come to realize that you are not only looking at someone or something, but you are being looked at. And that is a gift that your phone can never give you. But in engaging in prayer with the icons of the church, you are being gazed upon which is the very thing that constitutes us as being gazed upon by God. Friends, allow yourself to be held in the loving gaze of Christ. And may we be equipped for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until all of us come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to maturity, to the mature and full stature of Christ. Amen.